What's up, y'all? Good morning. My name is uh, Dylan Braddock, and I serve as the student coordinator here at the Story Church. And we are so excited that you are here this morning. If this is your first time worshiping with us, or it's your first time back in a while, you picked the perfect day because we are starting a brand new Christmas series, which I'm sure is going to be awesome, but fly by in like two weeks. That's how Christmas always goes. Um, but this series is called Overflowing with Thankfulness how Christmas changed everything. And we're taking this title from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, which says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, overflowing with thankfulness. So for the next few weeks leading up to Christmas, we are going to be studying the book called Colossians, which might seem like a weird pick for a lot of you. You'd think we'd probably pick something like Luke and talk about the nativity, but instead of focusing there, we want to put our hearts and minds on Colossians to see how that can prepare us for the Christmas season. So what do you need to know about Colossians? Well, Colossians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in a town called Colossae in ancient Near East. So we think that we usually assume that Paul was like a one-man wrecking ball that started all these churches by himself and evangelized the whole entire world on his own. But this really isn't the case, right? Paul had helpers. Paul had co-workers in ministry, people he was discipling and sending out to start churches, people like Timothy, John Mark, and in this case, we have a man named Epaphras. Now, we don't really know anything about Epaphras other than the fact that he started this church in Colossae, and he wrote a letter to Paul explaining the church's situation, explaining the strengths and weaknesses, and asking Paul for help. He's like, Paul, I don't know what's going on here. Come on, give me some help. What should I do? And Paul's response is recorded for us in the book of Colossians. And the main problem that Paul seems to be addressing here is that the people were adding other stuff on top of the gospel. So they weren't necessarily replacing Jesus, but they were saying, you need Jesus plus this to be saved. And we still do this all the time today, right? Like we say you need Jesus plus tradition, Jesus plus church attendance, Jesus plus self-discipline, uh, self Jesus plus self-help, Jesus plus knowledge, Jesus plus works righteousness. Fill in the blank, but we always usually make faith Jesus plus something else. And Paul's whole point of this letter is saying, Jesus is all you need. Let go of the distractions and keep the main thing the main thing. And that main thing is Jesus. So this focus on Jesus is what actually makes Colossians the perfect book to study this Christmas season. Because Colossians is obsessed with the idea of the incarnation. Have you heard this term incarnation? It's a theological term, which means God taking on flesh and living with us. I think we usually gloss over this idea that, yeah, Jesus became man. He was born as a baby, sure. But do you realize how radical of an idea this is? That God, instead of staying up in heaven by himself, decided to come down to earth to live with us, to become human, to walk with us in our darkness, and then rescue us. This is a profound statement, especially for Jews who thought God couldn't be seen or even touched. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says the Son, being Jesus, right? The Son is the image of the invisible God. Isn't that incredible that we worship a God who took on flesh to be with us? And we worship a God 
who lived among us. That's awesome. So in the lead up to Christmas, we'll be looking at stories from Colossians and the Gospels that really prepare our hearts and minds for the Christmas gift that changed everything, and that is Jesus. So I know for some of y'all, this Christmas talk may still seem a little premature. Um, We had Thanksgiving, what, like two days ago? Who still has Thanksgiving leftovers in their fridge? Yep, a lot of y'all. I'm sure a lot of y'all are having turkey sandwiches for lunch today, right? Um, I love Thanksgiving because I always leave with more leftovers than I came with. Like, as a 27-year-old, I bring nothing and I come home with plates of food to heat up for the next few weeks, right? And um, I just, like, love all the Thanksgiving food. I think Thanksgiving's, like, one of my favorite weeks of the year, to be honest. One, I think it's one of the best sporting weeks of the entire year. You have college basketball starting. You have college football rivalry week, the NFL games on Thursday. It's just a great football uh, time. But also the food, like the turkey. Uh, my family's from Louisiana, so they make, they make a crawfish cornbread stuffing, which is just fantastic. And then the cranberry sauce. Y'all, the cranberry sauce is probably my favorite, but it has to be the canned kind. I don't like the natural. I don't like the fresh. Just give me canned cranberry sauce, and I'm good. And since we've been talking about thankfulness and gratitude probably all week, why don't we start there this morning? Because our series is called Overflowing with Thankfulness. So let's talk about thankfulness. How many of y'all went around the table this Thanksgiving and said one thing you were thankful for? I'm sure, yeah, a lot of y'all did that. I remember doing that growing up. And I think every year would basically go about the same way. Um, We'd be sitting at my kitchen table and my sister would go first, of course. And my sister was younger than me. She was a teenager. And every time my mom said, Amanda, what are you thankful for? My sister would immediately throw her head back and be like, come on, mom. Do we have to do this again? We do this every year. Do we have to? And after like a five-minute argument, she would finally be like, okay, I'm thankful for One Direction tickets or Harry Styles or something like that. And then my dad would be next. And of course, he wants to keep it simple after seeing this whole ordeal pan out. So he just says, I'm thankful I still have a job and the price of oil is good. Great. Thanks, dad. Uh, mom goes next and she's, she's the one to ask the question, right? So she goes into the fields and it's like, I'm thankful for my family and each and every one of y'all for being here today. And then I'm last and I just want to eat the cranberry sauce. So I say, I'm thankful for football. Let's eat. And, uh, that's how it happens at many family tables across the nation on Thanksgiving afternoon. And look, I'm not hating on this practice. I think it's really healthy for us to pause and reflect upon the good things that God has given us but I really believe that Christian gratitude goes deeper than that. It should go further than us just sitting around the table and saying what we are thankful for. And I think Paul's opening prayer in Colossians chapter one gives us a really good idea about what real Christian gratitude looks like. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Colossians chapter one. If not, the verses will be on our screen. But I'll be reading from Paul's opening prayer in verse nine through verse 12. So the Apostle Paul says this, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Hold on, can we pause there for a second? I just love that Paul says he has not stopped praying for this church that he has never met. Like, isn't that just speak to Paul's character? Like our prayers are always so often about us and the stuff we're going through, but Paul is praying for this church, like a continent away that he's never met before because he has love for them. I just think that's awesome. So Paul says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, 
bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Man, I just love this opening prayer from Paul. Like you can hear the joy in his heart for this church that he has never even met. And Paul tackles themes in this um, prayer that we'll unpack in the next couple of weeks. But today I want to focus on the very end, verse 12, where he talks about thankfulness and this inheritance that we have in Christ. And when Paul talks about thankfulness, he's very specific about what we should be giving thanks for. He doesn't tell a church to be thankful for their obedience or their knowledge, or their growing church. He says they are called to be thankful for the Father, period. Thankful for the Father who has rescued them. That is where their thankfulness should lie. And while I appreciate um, this time of year us talking about gratitude and thankfulness a lot more, I feel like we as Christians miss the mark and we settle for a world's definition about what it means to be thankful. I was reading a few articles this week and I found one secular article that said these are the two keys to thankfulness. One, affirming the good things we've received. And two, acknowledging the role other people play in providing our lives with goodness. And while I think this is a solid place to start, a really good heart behind these two prompts, I would change them up slightly because I really think they're missing something critical here. I would say we are called to affirm the good things we've received from God. And we acknowledge how God provides our life with goodness. And I know to some of y'all that may seem like a really small change of words, but I think those two words from God matter a ton. Because all of our thankfulness should be rooted in God and not the things God gives us, right? And all the things that God gives us point to something greater. So let's Let's pause here and think about the best gift we've ever received. I want each and every one of you to pause and think, what is the best gift I've ever received? Was it a Christmas gift, anniversary gift, birthday gift? I want you to think about it. And then I want you to think about what made that gift so special and who gave it to you. For me, that gift was the car I got on my 16th birthday. Um, just so you know a little bit about me, uh, I played football back in the day. I know it doesn't look like it, um, but I went to Kingwood High School, and we were the Kingwood Mustangs. Our colors were blue and white, and I loved that school. So guess what my first car was? A blue used Ford Mustang. One day, I came home from school. The garage door popped open, and that's what I saw sitting there, this perfect car that I had been wanting for months. And as soon as I got out of the car, I'm pretty sure I sat in that vehicle for the next two or three hours, just pressing all the buttons, playing music until my parents made me get out and eat dinner. But what made that gift so special was not the really cool car, even though it was a really cool car. Um, But it was my parents who gave it to me, right? My dad spent months, probably a full calendar year, emailing different dealerships, driving all across the city of Houston, trying to find the perfect car with the perfect mileage and the perfect features. So while I was thankful for the piece of metal in the driveway, my gratitude wasn't directed at the car, but at my parents who gave it to me. And that car is long gone, probably in a trash pile somewhere, unfortunately, but my relationship with my parents isn't. 
And this is how we should approach the gifts that God gives us. Yes, we can affirm them. Yes, I want you to enjoy them. I want you to sit in them for hours, pressing all the buttons. But at the end of the day, we have to praise the creator and not the creation. The issue is sometimes we get so distracted by all the shiny toys God gives us, we forget to thank God for them. A good way to check the condition of our heart when it comes to this question is to ask yourself, am I thankful for all the stuff that God has given me? Or am I thankful for God and who God is? Am I thankful for all the stuff that God has given me? Or am I thankful for God and who God is? That will say a lot about your heart and where your heart is. So let's revisit Colossians chapter 1 and see where Paul roots his gratitude. I'll be rereading verse 12 and then going on through 14. So Paul says, Give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what you also have to know about this letter is that Paul wrote this letter from prison. Paul wrote this prayer about rescue and about thankfulness and about joy while he was in chains. And at this point in Paul's life, Paul had already been through a lot. He had been shipwrecked, imprisoned, beaten, robbed, and even stoned. Yet in all circumstances, he was able to give thanks. How is this possible? How can you write a prayer like this while you were in prison? It's because that Paul understands that despite being in earthly chains, He's already been rescued from a greater spiritual bondage. And when you've been rescued from evil, when you've been rescued from sin, how could you not have gratitude? And that's why Paul goes through hardship after hardship because he sees the end game, right? He knows a light has come into this world and this light shall not be distinguished by the darkness. In fact, the darkness will not have the last word. That is. Is what we remember on Christmas. The darkness, no matter how dark it seems, never has the last word. So speaking of rescue and thankfulness, there's one other man I want to talk about this morning, and his name was Zachariah. His story comes to us in Luke chapter 1, and Zachariah and Elizabeth are parents of the very famous John the Baptist. You might have heard a little, about, a little bit about John the Baptist, but he was Jesus's cousin who came to prepare the way. But before John was born, Elizabeth and Zechariah were old and childless, right? They were very righteous. They followed God. Zechariah even worked in the temple. So he was like a modern day pastor, yet he had not had children. And I, me and my wife were in, I'm re-engaged this past year, which is our marriage class. And I heard story after story about couples sharing their struggles with infertility. And I know how dark that can seem, but it might've even been darker in antiquity. Because at this time, if you couldn't have kids, you couldn't pass on your legacy. You would be ostracized from society and people might think you're childless because of some sin in your life. So both Zachariah and Elizabeth struggled with this, with this challenge most of their lives. And one day, while Zachariah was working in the temple, the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, appears to him. And Gabriel says, Zachariah, you got it. Your prayers have been answered. 
you are going to have a son and you're going to name him John. And you'd think Zechariah would like jump for joy and be like, thank you, thank you. But instead, Zechariah goes, Psht, there's no way that's happening. I'm old. My wife's even older. Uh-uh, not happening. Uh, but the angel says, nope, you're wrong. It's going to happen. And because you doubted me, I'm going to take away your voice and you will not be able to talk until this promise comes true. So Zechariah immediately loses the ability to speak and he runs home to his wife. And for some reason in his old age, his inability to speak actually helped him get it on with his wife, Elizabeth. And a few months later, they found out she was pregnant, right? God answered. Um, and for the entire pregnancy, he couldn't even talk, which I'm sure Elizabeth probably enjoyed that as well. Um, but nine months or 10 months later, whatever, the, the baby was born. And the first words that come out of John's mouth were name the boy John. And then he erupts into this beautiful song of praise. If I couldn't speak for nine months, I have no idea it would be the first thing that'd come out of my mouth. Probably if I was having a kid, it'd be a stupid dad joke. But instead of something silly like that, we can tell that God has been working on Zachariah. So Zachariah's first words that come are praise. And I want to read part of this song. It's a long song found in Luke chapter one, but it's all so good. So I want to read kind of the beginning and the end. I'll pick up in Luke 68 and then read through the end. So Zachariah says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in the darkness and in the shadow of death. Man, Zachariah just gets it, doesn't he? He hasn't spoken in nine months, and these are the first words that come out of his mouth. And I think it's really important we notice where his praise is directed. He doesn't praise God for this long-awaited son. He has probably been praying for John for like 20 or 30 years, praying for the chance to have a child, but he doesn't praise God first and foremost for giving him a child. He praises God for being God, the one that would rescue them, rescue Israel and redeem his people. Because you see, Zachariah's song was not about the gift, but Zachariah's song is about the giver. How often are our songs, our praises, obsessed with the gifts that God gives us rather than obsessed about the one who gave them to us? Zachariah understands the type of gratitude that Paul is praying about in Colossians chapter one. Zachariah realizes that he wasn't just rescued from not having a child, but he was really rescued from darkness, rescued from sin and rescued from his own selfishness. And this rescue from sin and the dominion of darkness is what his son, John the Baptist, would go on to preach about and what Jesus would come and fulfill. Jesus's whole ministry was about giving us freedom from the dominion of darkness, rescuing us from our own ways of doing things. This is probably most clear in Jesus's first sermon in Luke chapter four, when he reads from the prophet Isaiah and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom 
to the captive and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came to free the captive. Jesus came to be a father to the fatherless. Jesus came to give children the childless. Jesus came to heal the sick, to restore the brokenhearted and resurrect life where there was only death. So are you in chains this Christmas season? Are you enchained to a toxic relationship? Do you have insecurity at work? Are you struggling with a prognosis? Do you feel like you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death? I've come to tell you that Jesus is here to free you from those chains. Whatever darkness you might be in this holiday season, Jesus came to provide freedom from its power over you. You are not bound to the darkness anymore. You can be freed. But Jesus doesn't just stop at freeing us. It says he adopted us. He added us into his family. We are called sons and daughters of God. And not just that, but he says we share in a great inheritance. I have been obsessed with this word inheritance all week that comes from Colossians chapter one because I think it's so powerful. An inheritance isn't something you earn. It's not something you gather for your own. It's not something you collect. It's not something you build. An inheritance comes before you're even around. It's there before you even exist. And when we as Christians are reborn in Christ, we are given an inheritance that we can never possibly create on our own. We are invited into a kingdom that we have no business being in. We are like orphans who are adopted off the streets, adopted into this royal family and given an inheritance that makes us like trust fund kids that we could never possibly squander no, no matter how hard we tried. But if this is true, if we've been rescued, if we've been adopted, if we have this great inheritance, then why do we keep living in the dominion of darkness? Why do we let darkness have power over us? I think it's because sometimes we get so overwhelmed by the darkness, by the headlines, by the news, by temptations, by sin we commit in our own lives, that sometimes we give into the lie. We give into the lie from the devil that the darkness is winning. We actually believe that the darkness is beating out the light and we have to do something to make the light win. We have to do something to get behind Jesus and make sure he wins. But the truth of the gospel, y'all, is it is finished. It is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus defeated death and darkness and evil. And in him, we can as well. But it's nothing we do. It's all about what Jesus has done. And if we accept that, if we have been freed, then we have to live with a spirit of gratitude, overflowing with thankfulness. So the burning question I think that leaves us with this morning is if we have been rescued, if we have been saved, if we have this inheritance, then what does it look like for us this Christmas season to tangibly live in that kingdom of light? What does it look like for us to live in the light this December? I did some reflection over the past few weeks and I came up with three keys for us to practice gratitude over the Christmas season. The first is very simply, let God's light shine through us. 
My wife, Jessica, recently received an awesome promotion at work. She used to do the visual side of the company, kind of organizing the products, but now she is an assistant buyer. So she goes to markets and orders product and goes to the warehouse to make sure everything uh, um, is good to go. So part of this role, part of being an assistant buyer, means you have to spend many mornings at the warehouse. And I don't know how many of you have worked in a warehouse or been to a warehouse, but they're not the happiest places in the earth, right? It's not like in the TV show office. They're not that fun, I promise. Um, People who work in the warehouse often have long mornings. They're often there before anyone else, doing backbreaking work, often in a place during the summer where there's no AC, and during the winter, there's no heat. And unfortunately, a lot of times when managers go to the warehouse, they view the warehouse workers as a means to an end, right? A person to help them get product from point A to point B. But when my, when my wife moved to the warehouse, started working at the warehouse a couple of weeks ago, she chose not to view the warehouse workers that way. She has the spirit of compassion and kindness. So she just wanted to befriend the warehouse workers. She wanted to hear their stories. She wanted to laugh at their jokes. She wanted to hear their goals for their life and their visions for their future. And slowly but surely, she began to just have these awesome friendships with the warehouse guys. So much so that one of her coworkers told her a few weeks ago that this is the first time he has enjoyed being at work in months, maybe even years. That's the kind of difference God's light can make in our workplaces, in our families, and everywhere we go. Everywhere we go, we have a chance to bring a different light into that room. Here's a picture from a few weeks ago when they did their Christmas um, install, which is like the longest day of the year. They have to tear down the old shop and put all the Christmas decorations all up in one day. And if you look at this picture, every single person has a smile on their face. This is maybe the longest, most grueling days of the year, but they're all smiling. And the only reason they can do that is because there's a different light in that room. And a key point I need to make about this light is that this light is not something we do ourselves. We don't make this light. We don't have like a lighter making the light come into the room. No, God's light shines through us. And that's an important differentiation because think about a fruit tree, right? A fruit tree naturally bears fruit when it's in the right conditions, right? And it's in the same way when we're in Christ. If we are abiding in Christ, God's light should naturally come from us. It's not a work. It's something we naturally do if we are abiding in God. So this Christmas, how are you going to shine God's light in your workplace, in your family, or among the least of these? It's like that children's song we used to sing in VBS, right? Like, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. How are you going to let your light shine this December? Secondly, I think if we want to have a spirit of gratitude That means we'll give out of love and not out of guilt. During the Christmas season, there's this weird like obligation or guilt or maybe even shame for all of us to give. Do y'all ever feel that way? Like everywhere you go, someone is asking you for something, right? At church, we're asking you for money. You go to the grocery store and you see the bell and the tin jar and they're asking for dollars. Or when you check out, they're like, do you want to provide a meal to the homeless, right? Everywhere we go, people are asking us to give. And nothing against these ministries, nothing against these organizations. They're doing really awesome work. But sometimes during the Christmas season, it's so much that we get overwhelmed and we don't give out of love. We give because we feel like we have to. Like, let's just be honest. But I have found out in my life that often when we give out of guilt or shame, we don't see much fruit being produced. Two weeks ago, 
we had a uh, girls lock-in here at the story, which was awesome. But me being a 27-year-old guy, I realized I was not the person to be hosting this lock-in. So I basically got together a crew of my four best volunteers, and I gave them a vision, a theme for the weekend. And I said, you guys, go for it. And, and they did it. Like, they crushed it. I had Corey drive all the way down from College Station to lead our girls in worship. I had my friend Meredith, who's actually preaching at Timber Grove this morning, come and teach the girls a lesson about the Bible while also mixing in Krav Maga. So literally they had punching bags and were talking about Jesus at the same time. I don't know how it worked, but apparently it was awesome. And then I had two of my volunteers, Kelsey and Emma, literally stay up all night with the girls, making goo, friendship bracelets, ice cream sundaes, and watching all three Princess Diaries. These girls gave up of their time and honestly their sleep, not because I guilted them into it, at least I hope not, but because they loved these girls at the story. And that love makes a difference, right? We had a lake retreat this past summer, and we had like 18 students, 16 guys and two girls. So I was really worried we'd have two girls with this lock-in. But because of the love of my leaders, we had 17 middle school and high school girls show up at this event. And this event was an absolute home run, not because of anything I did, but because my leaders gave out of love and not out of guilt. And that makes the difference. When we give whatever we have, even if it's just a little, God can use it to multiply it for his kingdom. And if we have already been given so much, if we already share in this great inheritance, that means we give with no strings attached. We give because we have been given so much. So how are you going to give back this holiday season? You heard about this awesome organization called Lifehouse. We do Christmas wishes with them every year. And through this event, we give Christmas presents to kids who would probably never get them without us. You can give to Lifehouse Christmas wishes. You can give to our transition fund. You can spend time with an awesome organization like Houston Welcomes Refugees. I'm not gonna guilt you into giving. I'm not gonna tell you where to give, but I am gonna ask you that if you have been rescued, if you have been adopted, then you are called to give, not out of guilt, but out of love. And third and finally, if we are going to be overflowing with thankfulness this Christmas season, no matter what, we give thanks. No matter what happens in your life this Christmas season, you can give thanks. And I think this is probably the toughest one to talk about because, because to be honest, sometimes life just sucks. Sometimes life doesn't go our way. And I've been at moments in my life where I don't know what to be grateful for. I don't know what to thank God for because everything seems to be going against me. You might be in a place like that right now. I don't know what you're suffering through. It could be job insecurity. It could be health problems. It could be marital issues. It could be issues with broken relationships. I don't know what it is, but I know during Christmas, these things seem to be the most painful. We hope we can just snap a finger and these problems will go away, but it's this time of year when the pain is often most acute. We can't ignore it. But despite this, despite everything I'm going through this Christmas season, I am committing to give thanks in all circumstances not based on what God has given me, but based on who God is. My rescuer, my redeemer, my father. And that means that no matter what I'm going through, just like Paul, I can give thanks. 
And this, my friends, is the heart of Christian gratitude, that we give thanks no matter what. God sent Jesus to rescue me. And because of that, even when I don't feel like it, I can sing his praises. You have been rescued from the dominion of darkness. God calls you a son or daughter of God. God has given you a great inheritance that will never rust, that will never grow old, or will never lose value. Because of this, I challenge you to give thanks this Christmas season. Because of Jesus, we give thanks, not all the stuff under the tree. Would you pray with me? Father God, we give thanks. Not because any of the gifts you've given us, not because of the shiny toys you have under the tree, but because of who you are, God. Because you are my savior. You came down to earth to save me, to walk in the darkness and rescue me from it, to adopt me into your royal family and to invite me into a kingdom that I have no business being in. God, this morning, I need to confess the ways that I've praised the creation and not the creator. I need to confess the ways that sometimes I get distracted and try to add other things onto the gospel or add other things into faith when it's truly just simply you, God. You and your son, Jesus, are what all my thanks should be directed to. So this Christmas season, I pray you allow me to just get around all the fluff, all the decorations, all the extra stuff. And I pray you just... Let me return to the core of this season, the gift of the incarnation, that you came to live among us, that you came to save us. And because of that, I can be grateful no matter what happens. In Jesus' name, amen.